0: So, if you'd like to open your Bibles at mark oh, sorry Acts 15, let me start with a question. Please put your hand up if you are opposed to Christian unity. Now, I thought I was fairly safe there, though I did have a plan B just in case somebody did put their hands up, but uh, Somebody—I I can't remember who it was. I, it, I thought at first it was the Bible scholar F. F. Bruce, and then I thought maybe it was John Stott. But somebody of that generation, said on one occasion, the Bible is for Christian unity. I, I hasten to add, he was being ironic, of course. Um, you can't be against Christian unity, really, can you? <laughs> um, it's like, as, as Americans say sometimes, you can't vote against apple pie and motherhood. You know, there's just things so, so obviously good that. Um, you can't be against them and yet when you come and think what that actually means in practice you realise that that is much more complicated than some of these rather simple things might suggest so let me now just look at two things that Paul wrote about Christian unity and I'll just put a few verses up there on the slide Uh, Ephesians 4 verse 3 we're probably pretty familiar with it says, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. And then it goes on to say various things about gentleness and bearing on each other and so on. So you might think, well, that's not that difficult, is it? We've got to make an effort, but it seems fairly straightforward. But then this, I think, probably much less known and less quoted verse, we find in Galatians chapter 2, The one that's obviously relevant particularly to this dispute that happened in Acts 15. Galatians 2, 11 to 13 says the following. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group the other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy even Barnabas was led astray so Paul here is criticising two of the great leaders of the, of the church Peter the apostle and Barnabas his longtime friend how is that? making every effort to keep the unity of the spirit. And yet, I think, when we think about it, when we look into this passage, we'll say, actually, it is. Unity is something that has to be fought for. It doesn't just kind of happen. So in Acts 15, Luke addresses actually two challenges to Christian unity. In verses 1 to 33, which we read, he points at the problems that arise from too much distance, churches that are too far apart geographically or culturally, and therefore find it difficult to get on. And then, but the end of this chapter, which we'll look at next week, just fairly short, short verses, but I find them almost unbelievable. There are a lot of miracles and things in, in Acts, but I think Acts 6, the end of Acts 15, is probably the most difficult thing to believe in the, whole of the, um, in the whole of Acts. But we'll look at that next week. Those are the problems that arise from too much proximity when people who have worked together for years suddenly something, root of bitterness, as it's, Paul describes it, can... can spring up and it can go sour so we'll look at the first part the um, Council at Jerusalem this week <coughs> now as I pointed out when we started looking at Acts Luke always writes as an observer rather than a commentator as a historian and remember this is scripture so it's inspired by the Holy Spirit and we remember that there is one spirit But there are diverse gifts and there are therefore diverse sorts of scripture and we need to treat them in the proper way. Um, There are passages of theology and other passages of scripture contain a lot more commentary, a lot more organized theology. But Luke doesn't work that way. Luke tells us what happens. He tells us these things under the guidance of the spirit because it's something we need to know about And in both these passages, this one and the end of the chapter, we almost want to sort of scream at him, I need more data, Luke, I need more help, clues here. But he doesn't give us that under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And if we're going to complain to Luke, then we complain to the Holy Spirit himself. So Luke says, this is what happened, now go figure it out for yourself. Perhaps this is because, perhaps there is a reason for this, perhaps this is because while you can spoon-feed information, you can't really spoon-feed wisdom. Wisdom always has to be struggled for. So let's have a look at this issue. And we have to say that, as I said earlier, the Church's record on unity over the last 2,000 years is really not very good. We know perhaps about the Trinitarian controversies of the church fathers and all the other struggles that the church fathers had to keep the church united. In medieval times, there was the great schism in 1054 which which separated the western church and the eastern church where they just couldn't get on together and started excommunicating each other and just, well, that's why. Even today we have the, the Western Church and the Roman Catholic Church and the um, Eastern Orthodox churches. They split in, basically in 1054. And then we've moved forward to the Protestant Reformation and, may, and might think, well, you know, at least that was by the spirit. We should have at least have a good record on church unity, but Do we? I think we'd probably would say, we're the worst of the lot. Schism and fragmentation is endemic in the Protestant churches. Let me paraphrase a recent TV ad. One might say that unity is like flossing, you know, flossing your teeth. Everyone agrees it's important, but nobody actually does it. (laughs) And I think that's probably true. Everybody agrees unity is important, but do we actually do it? So let's ask ourselves some quite challenging questions and see how this passage can um, help us to answer them. But as I say, just as unity is harder than it looks, these questions may actually be harder than they look. So these are the questions I want to ask. First of all, does it actually matter? What is, does unity matter and if so why does it matter and then secondly what exactly is it what exactly is unity and I kind of mean it. what exactly is unity in practice um, can unity be imposed externally does it right to interfere in the affairs of another church is it right to set up in competition with another church and we'll look at that sort of question and then we'll look how the elders and apostles tackled this particular issue that, that faced them at the time, and I say not, not so much in detail because i don 't think it 's a live issue for us, but look at the sort of approach they took to it, and then, in the light of that, we could ask the questions: what, a, what approaches to unity might work today so first of all does church unity actually matter? And if so, why does it matter? One might start thinking, well, it's over 300 miles from Jerusalem to Antioch, and Jerusalem is a Jewish city with a Jewish culture. Antioch is a Gentile city with a very multicultural ambience. Why not let them just do their own thing? Why not let the two churches develop naturally in their own way? You know there are cultural differences, and those cultural differences are going to cause us problems. So why don't we just not worry about them? Why not let themselves embed themselves, as we might say nowadays, contextualise themselves in their culture in a sort of natural way, and um, <coughs> not worry about um, you know about trying to maintain unity at all. Well, I quoted Ephesians 4 verse 3 earlier. Let me just remind you the next part of that quotation where Paul writes, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Why complicate matters by insisting there is one faith and one church and one Lord? Well, the answer that Paul gives here is because there is one faith, one church, and one Lord. So let's unpack that a bit. There's one faith, and I I think clearly Paul means here not so much the, the act of faith but faith in the sense of uh, there is one body of things that we, we believe <coughs> Excuse me. so we could describe that perhaps as a unity of message and that was what the problem was in Antioch as we see if we look at chapter 15 verses 1 and 2 there was a different message being taught by these people from Jerusalem and by what Paul and Barnabas were teaching and that needed to be sorting out and the world looks at the church today doesn't it and it jeers at us and says how can you say that Jesus is the only way to God when your message is packaged in so many different ways and with so many different brand names and yet you say Jesus is the only way. This shouldn't be so, but regrettably it is. But we've we have made some progress perhaps of this and late, and I'll come back to that. But the first thing is there must there is and there must be one message. Any unity that is not a unity about preaching the same gospel is not a unity worth having. And secondly, there is one church. And we might describe that as a unity of welcome. You'll notice in verse 4 that the, when the, Paul and Barnabas and the others came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything that God had done through them. If I go to a church on the other side of the world somewhere, I would expect that they're probably going to speak a different language. I would expect them, perhaps, to have different modes of dress. I would expect them to sing different songs, maybe different patterns of worship, different ways they organise their worship services. And possibly, to some extent, there might even be differences of lifestyle and patterns of behaviour. And yet, if I go to a church on the other side of the world, I should expect to be welcomed They might offer me a glass of wine, they might offer me a Coca-Cola, or they might offer me just water. But whatever hospitality I'm offered, I should expect to feel at home. I think that's the point. There is one church. If there is one church, then the fellowship is for the whole church. And actually, to some extent, we do find this is true, don't we? When we travel abroad, and go to a church, which is maybe a different culture, a different language, then often we do find we're surprisingly at home. Yes, of course, there are some things that are different, but we recognize that they are serving the same Lord, that this is the, 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 the love, they have the love for us that we have for them. But sadly, one has to say, sometimes one feels more welcome in a church a thousand miles away than one does in one 10 miles up the road. Unfortunately, that is the case, but some shouldn't be. And thirdly, and really summing up the other two, there is one Lord who gives one Spirit. How can those who own allegiance to the same God in the heart not show it on the outside? It says why eat in verses 10 and 11, "Why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear, and so on? It's through the Lord the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. So if we have all received the same grace, if we all acknowledge the same Lord, then surely we should be one in spirit, but more than that, surely that should be something visible. You remember speaking of false prophets that one lord who we honor says thus by your fruit you will recognize them is it really that hard to distinguish good fruit and bad it's not you know you can't say can you really that well that they all look the same on the outside but that one's good on the inside and that one isn't it really work like that does it the um, you know you should be able to see something it should be visible that we that we all serve the same lord So let's move on a bit and ask a bit about this. What exactly is unity? Well, in one sense, we've answered that. Unity is the visible, practical, and even emotional, spiritual demonstration that there is one faith, one church, and one Lord. But let's again unpack that a bit and say that unity is not just organized, it's experienced because it's a unity of the spirit. And we could look at Acts 15 verse 1 again and say, well, actually, probably, these people who came Jerusalem from Jerusalem actually thought that they were promoting Christian unity. They thought they probably came up to Antioch and said, look, guys, you haven't got this quite right. Um, if you do, you've got to do these things and then we'll all look the same. I don't suppose they actually came you know with mischief really in their minds they probably genuinely believed in the message that they were bringing and yet it was to lead to disunity because it wasn't a unity of spirit that they were promoting it was actually just a unity of an external visible conformity to certain rules and practices in the end that makes no sense and the result Far from bringing unity was a sharp dispute, as we read in verse 2. And too often the church has made that mistake, hasn't it? In the late 20th century, there was something called the ecumenical movement and the World Council of Churches. I, I suppose it still exists, though you don't seem to hear much about it nowadays. But that tried to pretend that pretty much any organisation which claimed the name Christian could be included and tried to reach some sort of organisational unity on that basis one of their slogans was growing into unity which I suppose does acknowledge that unity is not just organisation but they tried to work at it from the outside in Um, I was brought up actually in a liberal congregational church not an evangelical one Um, and the minister there believed that we could have unity just on the basis of belief in the Trinity. That's the only thing he would insist on as a basis for unity, was a belief in the Trinity. And I suspect that even that might have been a bit strong for some of the (laughs) proponents of ecumenism. You cannot create unity just by asserting it. It's It's got to reflect something real. And of course, the Roman Catholic Church, and particularly at the time of the Reformation, but they failed to understand this and tried to impose order by force. They tried to say that we will we'll just, you know, you've got to believe what we say, whether you really do or not, you've just got to conform to the, the words. The Anglican approach, I think, is exactly the opposite of that but they also make the mistake of perhaps thinking that unity is not a spiritual thing. And just as some examples about this, everyone knows that the Anglican communities are disunited over issues like women bishops or um, homosexuality. But there seems little, you notice there seems little attempt to address the actual issue what you find is they look for some compromise that will hold the administrative structure together. Well, the Anglicans have really been doing that for the last 350 years. (laughs) I suppose you have to say they've succeeded so far. But but the problem is that you land up with such a diluted message that Well, I mean, you look at... Well, no, I'll come back to that. You can't achieve unity by negotiation, not, not in that sense, and compromise, because you land you up being united in name only, in organisation only, not in any real sense at all. Christian unity is unity of the spirit, but in a set of necessity, therefore, it proceeds from the inside out. But that's not to say that no intervention is required, clearly it is, and Paul and Barnabas and the leaders of the Antioch church soon realised that they needed to take action. (coughs) They couldn't just let things slide, they needed to go and sort this out, go and meet with the Jerusalem church and sort it out, and so that's what they did. Notice that they weren't prepared to declare themselves independent. They weren't prepared to set themselves up in competition to Jerusalem, although they could very easily have done that. In the last resort, perhaps if the gospel is at stake, then this might be unavoidable. But it has to be a last resort, I think, that we must should maybe making every effort to preserve the unity of the spirit, not just within the local church, but with the, the, within the universal, the global church. Any sort of going up into, into competition or even shaking the dust off your feet, as it were, has to be a last resort, I think. <coughs> so the, um, Paul and Barnabas... And some other believers go up to Jerusalem to sort this issue out. And um, they get a a good reception from the um, elders and apostles in Jerusalem. And they tell how, indeed, the grace of Christ has been preached among the Gentiles. And as it said, um, how the Gentiles have been converted. And we read that this made all the brothers very glad. Well, that's a good start, isn't it? You might have thought that it would be like some of the the other Jews who weren't glad at all that the Gentiles (laughs) were turning to to Christ. But still, there was a problem there. There was something that had to be sorted out. And so um, they have a public debate. Paul and Barnabas put their case. And then in verse 5, the opposition party are invited to put their case. This isn't a, um, an issue that's kind of imposed, covered up. On the contrary, it's exposed to public gaze so that everybody can see exactly what the issues are and why they're important and you know what we can do about it. So how did the apostles actually tackle it? I think you can divide this passage up into two bits. First of all, and we must start there, they start with a theological analysis of the problem. And that's what we find in verses 8 to 19. Paul, or whoever is speaking here, reminds the whole church that the prophets had indeed promised that the gospel would be extended to the Gentiles. And the fact that Paul had been commissioned to proclaim this and the fact that the Spirit has authenticated it indicated that this promise was being fulfilled. But even so, it's not just the testimony of Paul and Barnabas that is accepted. It has to be put, you know, let's let's check this. Let's check it from the scriptures. Let's make sure we understand what's really going on here theologically. It needs to be put into a theological context To make sure that this isn't a lying spirit as John says test the spirits not every spirit is the Holy Spirit so the spirit does have to be tested and that's why they start with this theological analysis of the situation but then the apostles also understand that not everything is a theological issue or at least that some things are not as important as others (laughs) There is also room. On on the theological basis, there has to be absolute unity because otherwise it's never going to work. You're actually preaching a different gospel. On other matters, there is some room for cultural accommodation. It's essential that the two churches should should remain united in spirit. It's essential that they have the same message, that they view each other as both sharing in the same task, that they view each other as being branches of the same operation, not, not rival concerns. But in other respects, one can allow some flexibility. And I think this is how we should read verses 19 and 20. If this was meant as a sort of actual <coughs> explanation of, of what the you know, what is the basis of the gospel that we should agree on, then it, it doesn't make any sense, does it? Verses 19 and 20. Um, I mean, it's all about, you know, it's not about grace at all, really. <laughs> um, but I think the point they're making is that in verse 19, well, it says explicitly, doesn't it, we shouldn't make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God by putting arbitrary conditions on them. But verse 20 is saying, okay, but we shouldn't make it difficult for the Jews either by, you know, just doing things that are going to offend them. There is some room for a bit of accommodation here. If I'm inviting a brother or sister from a Jewish background to a meal, I shouldn't be using my liberty in the gospel as an excuse to feed them meat which could raise an issue of conscience. Either feed them pork or perhaps something that had been offered to idols or, as it mentions here, something with blood in it that they're going to find at least unpleasant. So I don't think this is a prescription of saying that you shouldn't eat black pudding. I don't think that's the point. It's about um, accommodating people's weaknesses, if you like, because it doesn't really matter. We don't have to eat Meat with the blood in it. You know, and if it's going to offend our guests, then we won't. Put it in a more modern context, perhaps. Um, I personally will drink wine, as, as most people here know, I'm not teetotal. But if I know I have a guest who I know or even suspect might not drink alcohol, I'm neither going to offer it to them or indeed even drink in their presence because. It could give them offence. I'm going to be careful about things like that. I will not serve it out of respect for their conscience. So I think this verse 20 is about accommodation. And when you think about that, then it's, you, you, it is worth pausing about this reference to immorality, sexual immorality, because that does seem slightly out of place here at first. I mean, why is bothering to write that? I mean, surely no church that Paul and Barnabas are the leaders of, is going to be tolerating sexual immorality, are they? It's most unlikely. Why, does, um, why do, do they feed the elders and apostles feel the need to write this into their letter? So it might, it's worth thinking a little bit about that, I think, because um, what is the Greek word? The Greek word is porneia. Which does refer to sort of deviant sexual behaviour, but it's, it's actually, as I think Phil told us at one time, it's quite a broad word. It can mean lots of different things, almost any, any form of sexual deviance or sexual immorality. Um, and I might, given that the rest of this sentence, the other things are about eating, about food, about guests, inviting guests, I'd suggest to you that possibly. Um, That's particularly what the elders are focusing on here. Now, how can we make sense of that? And it might be something to do with Roman interior decoration and and, um, seating plans is one possibility I might suggest to you. Even a hint of Greco-Roman sexual mores would be offensive to Jews. Jews. We know, actually, if you look from verses like Acts eleven twenty-nine, where they made, took a collection for the Jerusalem church, or from Acts 13, 1, where we know that at least one of the leaders of the Antioch church was an aristocrat. Some of the people in the Antioch church were doubtless prosperous Romans or Greeks, and a prosperous Roman or Greek would um, own a villa, and their rooms would be decorated with frescoes. And if you can face it, have a look on the internet at some of those, some of those frescoes were like. Um, there's Lots of them have survived in... in um, oh, what's the name of the place? It's gone. Pompeii, that's it, yes, thanks. Um, a lot of them survived in Pompeii. They often uh, showed nudeness, nakedness, and sometimes they actually described Sexual activity as such—it's possible that the you know that some of the Romans or Greeks might say, "Well, that is just what we have in our walls." You know, that's that's just the trendy thing to have. It may be they didn't even take it very seriously or mean much by it, but that was certainly going to be offensive to any Jew who came into the house. what about the seating arrangements, Roman and Greek seating arrangements, I think would have put men and women, not necessarily husbands and wives, together in, in uh, you know, the seating plan would have been, itself, could have been scandalous to some Jews. And um, again, if you think about it in these terms, you realise that they can still be live issues today. I mean, we would crowd men and women around a dining table or on a sofa in a way that we Westerners wouldn't really think much of. We just do that. But it could be uncomfortably provocative to those from some cultures. And, and to see that, you've only got to look at the um, problems that the Germans are having with their refugees and these things that happened on, on um, New Year's Eve. What is normal in one culture is, is provocative in another culture. And uh, let me just... Give you one example. We need to be careful about the paintings and photographs on on our walls. It's quite easy to offend people without meaning to. Um, Let me give you one example of this from some time ago. I, when I was sort of late teens and early, well, my teens and early twenties, I used to help run Crusader camps on the Norfolk boards, sort of Christian holiday camps, and. um, the Crusaders, were one, well, the Norfolk Broad's Crusader camps was one of the first, one of the earliest to go mixed, to have uh, both boys and girls. Originally, they were they used to run separate camps for boys and girls, but Norfolk Broad's was actually one of the first ones to go mixed. And one day there were sailing camps, but one day for some reason like, we weren't sailing. I, I think it must have been um, probably there was no wind or something, and so we decided instead to go to the beach and go swimming, which we did. And one of the boys took a photograph of the swimming party on the beach. And one of the photographs happened to show one of the female leaders was wearing a bikini. Now, I don't think anybody had, you know, on the beach was swimming, it's a swimsuit. I don't think either the lady herself or any of the um, other leaders had thought anything of this. And yet, when that boy took that photograph home and showed it to his uh, parents, one of them complained. One of them had been offended by it. It is n- much easier to offend people than you actually realize, just without thinking about it. But I think I should also make the point that what we're talking about here is not political correctness. It depends on a culture of mutual respect for each other's liberty in Christ. If you go down the route of not offending anyone under any circumstances, you soon discover, as our government is indeed discovering now, that you land up having to ban everything (laughs) because everything is going to offend somebody at some time. So we're not talking political correctness here, we're talking cultural sensitivity. Let's, you know, let's, uh, when we meet with other Christians from a different culture, From a different way of looking at things. Let's um, share our mutual liberty in Christ. You know, not go out of our way to offend each other, but at the same time, you know, show tolerance for things. I mean, they didn't really mean to do that. That upsets me. You know, they didn't really mean to upset me. So it's a two sided thing. We need, first of all, to make an effort not to offend our uh, visitors. Whoever they are, if they're brothers and sisters in Christ. But equally, we shouldn't be too pernickety either ourselves. We need to remember that there are differences. People do do things differently. And um, sometimes we just have to uh, put it aside. And so they, they, didn't, they didn't really mean to offend me over that. <coughs> so that's a bit of a discussion of what how the apostles and elders tackled this so just to summarise that on the theological centre they were absolutely clear because they had to be if there was one faith one church one Lord there has to be one message but at the same time on other issues there could be accommodation and you just think of the things that might upset people I say these are I think actually are all about eating together which we saw from that quotation from Galatians, it was the particular problem that some of the Jews were not prepared to eat with the Gentile believers in Antioch. So that was then, what about now? What approaches to unity might work today? And again, I want to just emphasize again that unity is not an option just because we're not very good at it doesn't mean it's something we can ignore. I mean, the Christian life just doesn't work like that, does it? I mean, you know, it's not the case of ten commandments, attempt only eight. You know, it's uh, anything that the Lord commands, we've got to take seriously. Unity is essential. And it is true. That Christian unity proceeds from the Spirit and is firstly internal. That is true, but it's so often evangelicals particularly have made that of an excuse. They said, Yeah, well, you know, we're all one in Christ really, the fact that we don't look like it doesn't really matter. But it does matter. The unity needs to be displayed visibly. How do we do that? Do we impose it from outside, as the the Roman Catholic Church tries to do? Well, we saw—you see what happens if you do that. You land, you know, your 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 leaders are never perfect, and you simply gradually drift away from the true apostolic doctrine. You know, even by claiming apostolic succession, you drift away from apostolic doctrine. So that doesn't work. You can't impose it by denominational rules, as it were. And is the, Does the, the um, Anglican approach, a sort of endless compromise, work? Somebody once said of the Anglican Church that it's so broad that nobody from the Pope to Mousy Tongue, can be sure he's not an Anglican. Um... um But, well, as I say, they've kind of done it for 350 years, but if you look at the state of the Anglican Church now, what do you see? You see that the centre is dying. Broad church Anglicanism is is a a dead duck, really. Only on the extremes, on the wings, amongst the Anglo-Catholics and the evangelicals, otherwise the people who actually believe something. (laughs) Is there any progress? Is there any um, actual, uh, you know, well those are the only churches that aren't empty the ones that do actually believe something because why are people going to turn up to church to hear a message that doesn't tell them anything different to what they could get off their tv it's not worth the effort is it why would they bother we must have if we just try and work by compromise then soon we shall be so the message will be so thin as to be non-existent Oh, it is going to work, and we have to say, really, we've got too much history, haven't we, and too much hurt. We've got too much commitment to our traditions and practices. I don't think there is a magic wand that's going to put it all back together. If there was, then undoubtedly somebody would have waived it by now. It's a continuing problem, and as um, even the fix that the Council of Jerusalem presented was not without its problems. It didn't instantly solve everything, as if we read on in Acts and in some of Paul's letters. We find that there were still struggles over these issues. <coughs> but I would say that there are hopeful signs too, because I suppose what it, somebody said, "Nothing concentrates the mind so much as the knowledge one is to be hanged in the morning." Um, the fact that the word that Christianity has declined in the West has at least focused minds on the issues, And there are some hopeful signs, at least among evangelicals, to try and work towards unity. But even that has not been a total success. Um, the Evangelical Alliance in Brighton at least really has not flown Um, may work better in other places I don't know but in Brighton the mere label Evangelical turned out not to be enough in the end where there was no unity of spirit now so I'm not sniping at the Evangelical Alliance as such they they spawned the tear fund which I think in many ways is a a genuinely unifying organisation. But the way it worked in Brighton, frankly, didn't work very well. Because, you know, even to just have the label evangelical, even actually just to have a, an evangelical basis of faith, doesn't really unite people because you interpret it to mean what you want it to mean very often. It means different things to different people. So is there any hope at all? Well, I think I would actually say that there is. And I think, for instance, that the innovation, which is really a 21st century innovation, of the gospel partnerships, the one we belong to, of course, is the Sussex Gospel Partnership. And I do think that's a hopeful sign, actually. Um, It's small, in sense. you know, it doesn't even cover all evangelicals by any means. But at least it's a start. And how does it work? It's not a common denominator approach. You know, what's the least common denominator we could all sign up to? It actually starts in a different place. It says, <coughs> excuse me, it says, let's start with spirit. Spirit rather than with the doctrinal position as such. And I've deliberately, on the slide there, put a spiritual unity with capital S. Let's start with a spiritual unity that we have and proceed from there. But then say, well, it's got to be some sort of unity of purpose. So let's say we'll start with those churches that Share our view of that evangelism should be by preaching and teaching the word. Um, Share our our view perhaps in one or two other things about church services. But quite minimal of things. I mean in many ways there's, there's a broad range of actual practice across the gospel partnerships. But there is a unity of spirit. That unity that the way forward is to preach the word, teach the word, not anything else that other people are suggesting it might be the way forward. And then, when you proceed from that, of course, you've still got to have theological agreement to make it work. You can't just say, "Let's all be nice to each other." That that doesn't work. And so, but you have got to. But if you start from that approach, you approach the theological basis of faith from a different direction. The unity. The, sorry, the basis of faith comes, it becomes a way of expressing our unity rather than sort of trying to put a boundary around things that can't really live together. You know, Sometimes a basis of faith is like trying to herd cats. Um, it just, just doesn't work. <laughs> but if we, a basis of faith is really a creed, in the original sense of the word, something in which we agree on as an expression of what we are about, like the, um, the catechism perhaps that uh, Phil has been teaching us in the mornings. It's not offence, it's, it's a statement of agreement. These are the things that we agree on and they are the key and fundamental things. It expresses that unity in the spirit that's already there rather than trying to impose unity by a sort of least common denominator of doctrine. And I would suggest to you this does seem more in line with the approach of Acts 15. They say, yes, the grace has been extended to the Gentiles. Therefore, we are unified in spirit. Now, let's make that work by sorting out the theology of it. And it works surprisingly well. Well, I think I think the, the the Sussex Gospel Partnership, which is the one I have most experience of, um, works surprisingly well. You know, there are the, the biggest churches. Most of the big churches are Anglican churches. There are a few a few bigger FIC churches, but most of the big churches are Anglican churches. From quite a, a, a broad range. I mean, not the total expan- expanse of. Evangelical Anglicanism, but they're certainly not all exactly the same. They're not all St. Helens clones or anything like that. Um, And yet the main teachers on the training course are in fact independents. Nick McQuaker is a FIEC, from an FIEC background, and John Hobbs is actually a lapsed Anglican. Um, he He was an Anglican. Vicar, I think, wasn't he? Yeah, he was an Anglican vicar and felt he could no longer stay within the Anglican communion. Um, And yet, you know, the the evangelical Anglicans are prepared to send their people along to be trained by these two independents because there is a mutual trust there. When they do come up against differences, they will, um, you know, they will be sensitive, there will be cultural sensitivity and say, look, To be honest, we don't quite agree on this particular issue. Here's both sides of the case. But that does at least open the debate. It does say that maybe we can grow into unity. I don't think there's anything wrong with the slogan growing into unity. It was just the way it was used by the ecumenical movement. Maybe we can grow into unity because these differences become stimulus to mutual cross fertilisation rather than things that that drive us apart. None of us possess the whole truth, but as we work and teach together, we will start to converge, I think. That's the way, that's what you find in practice. And then actually, if you start thinking on these terms, one considers how one might spread the net a little wider, talking to churches that are not gospel partnership members and. And certainly, in Hayward's Heath, they've actually started thinking about this. Ta- talking, for instance, to New Frontiers churches. I mean, not very far away, They're not you know, attempting the impossible, but churches that are slightly different in in culture and attitude, and are beginning to work together with with the, certainly the New Frontiers Church in, in um, Burgess Hill. So, I would suggest to you that this. Well, let me say first of all. Is unity important? Yes. Does it matter? Yes. But it's not easy. We can't impose it. We can't negotiate it. And even trying to sort of impose it by a basis of faith or something doesn't really work. It doesn't quite work. But if we can start with a spiritual unity and then find how to express that formally, perhaps we can make progress. (coughs) There's an awful long way to go, isn't there? Um, but perhaps we can really put right what has been wrong, really, for 2,000 years. <laughs> we can perhaps make some progress in the right direction. So that's the external unity, unity between different churches. That's possibly the easier of the two. <laughs> the things that can grow up in a, within a church are what we looking at next week, perhaps the the trickier problem, or certainly the most painful one, the more painful one. So there wasn't really any other choice of him that I could make, is there, Um, after that sermon, other than 579.